Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to you in our Port Perry site. Glad that you're with us this morning. I think we all know no matter where we come from, what our background is, what our gender or status is, is that expectations can destroy someone or build someone up. Expectations usually tend to be the unsaid things that in the end bring blessing or curse. If you are married, you will know that if you have wrong expectations of your spouse, it will shipwreck your marriage. If you have right expectations of your spouse, things have a much better run. If you have children and you have wrong expectations of your children and you place them on those children, things go sideways. If you have right expectations, it's no guarantee, but you got a better chance at the ball game. Expectations are so critical. And yet what I find so interesting, whether it's expectations in marriage and friendship in your job or with kids, very rarely do people of faith, people who are committed to Jesus and are thinking about Jesus or seeking him out, stop and genuinely sit back and evaluate by themselves and in community what the said or unsaid expectations are among us of our faith and of God. Because again, this is so critical. If you have wrong expectations, then your starting place is wrong. And when something violates those expectations, then God failed you, you think, or you failed God, or the church failed you. And maybe that's true, but maybe none of that's true if you're starting in the wrong place. So interesting when we really sit back and we think about the dark times in our faith, That is when the unsaid expectations emerge to the surface. So interesting, sitting here in a church in North America and the West, how we are lulled into the idea that we are safe, that our faith involves no risk, that God is with me and he would never let something bad happen to me, or God within his sovereignty would never let the devil touch me. These are all expectations, but are they true? Are they biblical or are they cultural? Well, today in the book of Acts, in chapter 12, we now come face to face with confronting our unsaid and said expectations. Now, so far, since you've been with us, most of you, this has been an unbelievable journey. Within 11 chapters, we've seen God do so many profound things. Hebraic Jews actually reconciling with Greek Jews as they met Jesus. And then that group that hated Samaritans who called the half-breeds and dogs and heretics suddenly became actually family and fell in love with them when Jesus showed up into their life. And then there was an Ethiopian guy, now modern Sudan today, who actually was trying to reach out to God. And then he was connected. And God has continued to do... I mean, this is the agenda of God to bring all people back to himself. And then over the last two weeks, remember God changed his focus again? He started talking and looking towards two people that if you're a Christian here today, none of us would want God to talk to, hang around. And if we were honest, many of us wouldn't even think that God should care about them, look upon them, or love them. And yet God systematically keeps overcoming more and more barriers. He keeps crossing more and more red lines. He keeps going to places where we naturally do not want to go. Remember, the next two moves of God we read about in the last two weeks were more radical than any Jew hanging out with a Samaritan 
Samaritan because God decided to show the world and show us as a church that no person, no person, no person is off limits to God's love. Jesus really did die for the sins of the whole world and now even enemies would become part of God's family. Two weeks ago, it was a fellow uh, Jew in the original church that actually encountered God. He was Saul, who later became Paul. And then last week, God crossed another red line, and he decided to make Romans, even Roman soldiers, uh, uh, the occupational force against the Jews, family also through Jesus. See, when you look at this story, these are the words that should truly be found among us. This is impossible, unfeasible. This is impractical. This is unworkable. This is not viable. This is unattainable. This is completely unachievable out of the question, hopeless, ridiculous, and stupid. And yet Jesus keeps doing the impossible, bringing enemies together to make them family and friends, to show the world that Eden has not been destroyed and the new heavens and the new earth are coming. Now, in the middle of all this amazing stuff, revival, baptisms, conversions, the reconciliation of enemies, the undoing of thousands of years of misunderstanding and misapplied theology, in this great move of God, another wave of persecution began. Suddenly, it's almost like we are dragged back through the reverse of Acts 1-8. With Cornelius, we're almost like at the ends of the earth, and then we're dragged back through Samaria into Judea, back into the lion's den, now back into Jerusalem. And it reads like this in God's Word, Acts 12.1. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some that belonged to the church, and he intended to persecute them. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, maybe you haven't, we have to stop and ask some historical questions. Number one, well, which Herod is this? Because there seems to be so many, I'm confused. This is Herod Agrippa I. He lived from 10 BC to around 44 AD. Well, that was basically his reign. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, and he's the nephew of the Herod you read about in the Christmas story who met the wise men and murdered all those children. So that's a real healthy family to grow up in. Now, Herod's child, this Herod, Herod's childhood and young adult years are absolutely epic and amazing. He actually lived his whole young adult life and his child life in the highest imperial circles in Rome. His two closest friends are people called Claudius and Gaius. Now, if you know anything about Roman history, both of them grew up and both of them both became Caesar, the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. If you know history, you know Gaius by another, another name. His other name is Caligula. He's the grandnephew of Tiberius. And in 37 AD, when Caligula became sole ruler of the Roman Empire, he decided to give his childhood friend significant power and significant land. And so Gaius gave this Herod what we're actually talking about today, where he ruled. So Herod is pro-Roman, and he's absolutely connected at the highest levels, and yet there's something more particular about him. He is also very respectful of Jewish ideals and custom, and unlike some of the other people in his family, he was liked by many of the Jews of the day because his grandmother was a Jewess, part of the Hasmonean destiny. That is the Jewish family that actually, between Malachi and Matthew, fought the Greeks, they're called the Maccabeans, and set the Jewish people free. So you need to think about this guy very carefully this morning. Extremely powerful, young, really connected. He's loved by by both Orthodox Jews and by Caesar and by the Romans. He's an amazing bridge builder. He knows how to keep things right and in balance. Now, if you want a modern archetype of who this man is, here it is. He is Frank from House of Cards, for real. No, sincerely. 
He is a ruthless leader who will do anything to keep power in balance. And so what he decides to do at this time in history is this. He decides to lay hold on, to harm, to mistreat, to persecute, to systematically dismember the church. The religious leaders who hate the Romans and the Romans who distrust the Jewish leaders actually now through this leader come together, strange enemies, a common uh, enemy, strange bedfellows, and through him he mediates this. And so what was Herod's first call? What, what did he decide to do? What would be the big blow? What would be the massive blowback against the church? Well, he decides to do this, and it reads simply like this in verse 2. So we had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword, and it happened. For the first time in the church, they realized no one was off limits. One of Jesus' inner circle, one of the twelve, is murdered just for loving and preaching about Jesus. Can you imagine the growing fear in the community? I mean, Stephen was bad enough, and the persecution under Saul was scary enough through jail, but now even the twelve can be touched? I didn't think maybe the twelve could be touched. I mean, can you imagine his brother? Oh, you know his brother, that's John. You say, well, which John is that? Oh, that's the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation. Can you imagine when he heard that his brother had been murdered? The sadness, the anger, the pain, the question. So James is beheaded in public. Now in this time in Jewish law, beheading, death by the sword, was reserved for two groups. If you were a murderer, this could apply to you, and or if you were charged with blasphemy, false teaching, which James was. But see, now we begin to see why this really happened. It wasn't about the teachings of Jesus. See, this is about power. When Herod, verse 3 saw that this met with the approval among the Jewish people. He proceeded then to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. So Herod did this because he knew it would help his cause. He got more likes. He got more retweets. He got more people to watch. He got more yeses. It gave him power over and credibility with those who might be his strongest historical critics. And so what does this brilliant, cunning, sly politician do? Well, he wants better ratings and he wants more control. So Herod doesn't care about what Christians teach or what they think. He wants to maintain one thing, political, economic power. And so James is dead. And now Peter, Peter, the same guy that did all that amazing work with Jesus that we talked about with Pastor Dave last week, who went and actually hung out with his enemies. Remember, Peter was a religious terrorist, a zealot, who was, his dream was to murder Romans, and he's the one who sent and hangs out with Cornelius, and Cornelius speaks in tongues and becomes a brother in Christ, and now, and now Peter is thrown into jail for seven days during the Passover by the same proxy Roman government that he was trying to love a few weeks earlier. Now, what's really profound is this. Lean in. This is happening during a high holy festival called Passover. And this actually shows how dark and blind this really is in this moment because here's the shocking irony of this. Jesus is the fulfillment of this high holy Jewish festival. And yet Jesus' people are now being thrown in jail and their life is being taken during Passover for preaching about the fulfillment of Passover. Do you remember Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he saw his cousin walking over the hill and he said, Behold, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
See, Jesus is the fulfillment. Do you remember the story in Egypt? The people of God, the Hebrew people, were slaves for over 400 years. And, and God sent Moses. And God sent plagues against the Egyptians. And Pharaoh would not let God's people go. And so the last plague, the most devastating plague, was that he would take the life of every firstborn child. But for the protection of the people of God and under God's caring direction, they were told to take a perfect little lamb and kill it and put the blood over the doorposts of each house and as the angel of death passed over it would see the sign of the blood as a representation of protection that is why the lamb is called the passover lamb the lamb represents a life laid down one taking the place of others those who deserve what is coming are covered by mercy when Solomon established the temple years later, every morning and every evening at sacrifice, they took a little lamb and they would sacrifice it, and it was called the guilt and sin offering. See, here's what we need to understand as we dive into this question about expectations and God's move. Jesus is the ultimate culmination of this festival. He is the replacement because he is the real Passover of the lamb. He's the offering to deal with our guilt and sin, and his life and his ministry and his death and his glory resurrection and his ascension into heaven would deal with everything between us and a holy God and yet and yet Peter is in jail during this festival for preaching that the good news has been fulfilled through the ultimate Passover lamb Jesus so Peter's sitting rotting in a jail and God decides within himself to do something he decides to do a little exodus a number two and so he goes and says, I'm going to set Peter free. Well, after he was arrested, it says Herod put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. And Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Peter is taken so seriously by influence that he has four guards on him at all time. Two are chained to him all the time. Two are at his door or in his hallway. If he had to go to the bathroom, two guards were with him. Like there is no privacy. And this is an end game situation. You're going to die just like James. This isn't a real <laughs> a trial coming up. There's no way out. There's no legal recourse. There's, there's no door to escape. There's no inside man. Peter is a dead man sitting. Peter is a dead man waiting. He's a dead man walking. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. It's interesting, you know, we live in such a free world, in a free society. So if something goes wrong, we can protest or tweet or, or do a fake. No, no. Most of us sitting in this place have never, ever, ever lived in a place where your rights are so removed that if you protest, you die too. So there's only, thing, there's only one thing the church can do. They can't, they, one thing. They can only pray. They begin to go before God. They begin to petition. They begin to stand in the gap. They go before God who's above all things, who controls all things, who knows all things, who has overcome the impossible in the past. But notice something. I've read this passage so many times, but I never caught this. It says that the church was praying, not just one moment and then they were done. It seems like they had an off and on prayer meeting over this whole six days. Six days, this church kept standing in the gap for Peter. Six days pass. Six days of festival and six days of terror. Six days of unanswered prayer. Six days of injustice. Six days Peter's preparing to die. And at the very last minute, God decides to move. The night before Herod was going to bring Peter to trial, 
Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood at the entrance. Oh, do, you, oh, do you see it? I mean, this is the night before you, you're killed. And there's Peter, deep asleep, chained to two guards. You think if you're married, your spouse is giving you trouble in bed. Imagine being trained, chained to two big men. <laughs> He's sleeping. How in the world is he sleeping? He doesn't have any drugs to calm him down. Sovereignty. This isn't just in here for effect. This is history. Peter is sleeping because he actually knows and trusts God. And so he is chained to two men who are trained killers. There are two soldiers outside of his door. There is no way out. And by the way, let me just give you another historical note. He's not in some local sheriff's jail. He is in the main fortress in Jerusalem. There is no way out. And there he is. Suddenly. Oh, I love that word in the Bible. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. He said, hey, quick, get up, and chains fell off Peter's wrists. Can you imagine the conversation? Hey, Peter, Peter, get up. I'm wondering if he's like, mom, mom, it's not school tomorrow, right? Not yet. Turn the lights off. I wonder if the angel said, oh, humans, all the time. It's interesting when you read the text, it sounds like the angel hit him pretty hard, kicked him in the ribs, slapped him in the face, pushed him hard, like, need, wake up, Peter. Hey, Peter, our common boss has really sent me. This is really happening. Yo, look down, look at your wrists. The chains are on, on the ground. Put on your clothes, put on your sandals, wrap the cloak around you and follow me. Peter, Peter, this is happening. This is not a trance. This is not a dream. You really want this, but this isn't happening. This isn't like last night's hummus coming back and doing weird things in your head. Bro, bro, get up, get up, chop, chop. Peter, stumbling, half asleep, unsure, follows the one should not even be there. It says that Peter followed him right out of the prison. I love how honest the Bible is. He had no idea that the angel was really doing this because he thought he was seeing a vision. So they passed through, through the first and second guards, and then they came to the iron gate that actually leads into the city, and it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, I'd never caught that before, suddenly the angel left him. I wonder if the cold got his attention. I mean, he looks around, suddenly realizes he's free for real. Chains guard, the huge iron gate, not just in the jail, but actually the one that protects the city itself, opens, he walks right through it. And like the angel's like, come on, man, come on. Walks him all the way down to the end of the street. And then when he's out of danger, he's like, all right, that was great. See you in eternity, I'm out. Psh, disappears. Peter's like... And then it says, then Peter came to himself. I love this. Oh, this is really happening. Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping that would happen. And when this dawned in him, it's like this progressive, oh my goodness moment, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. You know him as the author of a little thing called the Gospel of Mark. Uh, many people were gathering there and they were praying. So this is one of the early gathering points for our movement and Christian tradition says this actually might have been the home where the Last Supper took place. Well, no matter, Peter goes to where his connect group is praying, 
And it says, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. Now, you say, uh, okay, that's fine, but outer entrance, can you just look at that? Because it's really important. You're like, well, that's just a historical note. No, no, it's more than that. Only large homes, homes of great profound wealth had these. So this is a home in Rosedale. This is a home in Yorkville. This, this is the middle of money. And Peter comes to his large connect group. And of course, in all homes of great wealth or staff. So this is down in the Abbey, Jewish style for Christians or whatever. And Rhoda, the servant girl, comes late at night. And there's a knock at the door. And I guarantee you she's nervous. Why? Well, because she's part of a church that's illegal. The king is against the church. Christians are being hunted. It's the middle of the night. There's a prayer meeting and there's a knock at the door. And so what takes place next? She does not open the door. She says, who's there? And then it says, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was overcome and she ran back without opening and explained, Peter's at the door. Now, think about this. Peter is in the, out in the middle of the night. He's a fugitive. He does not know if the cops are coming. And he makes it all the way back to his connect group and says, Hey, Rhoda, it's me. We've hung out before. She gets so excited and flighty. She runs into the prayer meeting, yells, Peter's at the front gate. And Peter's like, Hello? Bueller? Really? Really? I wonder if he's like, Serious? Jail? Angel? Guard? Prison? City gates? I can't even get into my own connect group? Are you joking me? Anyone? Anyone? Well, the servant girl runs in and says, Peter is here, six days of prayer, our prayers are answered, and watch the response of the church. You're out of your mind, little girl. And when she kept insisting that it was so, then they say, oh, fine, it must be his angel. God answered six days of fasting and praying, and they don't even believe it's possible. They're praying for days, earnestly, fervently, deep, real. Literally in Greek it says they were stretched out before God. Great prayers with no expectation. Now notice the bias in the room. You're a little girl and you're a servant. Thanks for your enthusiasm. Thanks you're young. We've been around the block a little bit more than this. Peter's not at the door. His release is, here's the oxygen in the room, impossible. Maybe it's his guardian angel, because you know guardian angels sometimes look like the ones they're guarding. So let's get back to praying, and let's not believe again. Peter kept knocking on the door. Seriously. When they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. I'm sure they already were. He described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he says, well, you tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left for another place. So Peter gets into his connect group finally. They finally allow him in. He tells them how God has saved him. And then he says, by the way, you need to let James know how this has gone down. And then he disappears into the night to another hiding place. Now, some of you are going, does Peter not know James is already dead? Wrong James. You're like, really? So many Herod, so many James. I know. This is James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the brother of John. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So Peter says, you make sure that James, the leader of our movement here, knows I'm alive, how his brother has done a great thing, and, and I've got to go. You know James because he wrote this little book called the book of James later. Well, in the morning, the story says there was no small commotion among the soldiers as of what had happened to Peter. 
After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they would be, oh my goodness, executed. I'm sure Herod thought it's a plot, it's a bribe, some incompetence, but no matter, according to the code of Justinian, if you were a prison guard and you let someone go, you would have to pay the same price they were going to have. And so all four soldiers, if not more, were all executed. And that shows you that Herod had no intention of giving him a true trial. Well, the story shifts again. Not only did Herod have great power over life and death, but actually Luke stops for a very intentional moment to show us how much power he really had. You see, he actually had power over cities and over regions. He's at the height of his power at this moment. And remember, his personal friends are the most powerful people on earth. He had Roman military backing, the support of large amounts of the Jewish leadership. And this next part shows the power that extended even beyond Jerusalem and Judea, etc. Then Herod went from Judah to Caesarea and stayed there. Now he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they now joined together and sought an audience with Herod. And after securing the support of Blastius, wow, that's quite the name, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on Herod's country for their food supply. You say, well, John, what's going on? Here's what's going on. There's a trade war. And there are two self-governing cities at this time, Tyre and Sidon, who actually were self-ruling. And they were at war economically with Herod's part. And so Herod got so angry at these two cities, he actually started an economic blockade to put them in line. And so now this is the time in history where they come groveling back to Herod and he is going to show them who's in charge. And he's going to put on the biggest show so they know that they know that they know that he's king and they're not. You ever been in an office before where all the chairs are a little shorter and the boss is a little bit higher? You ever had a handshake with someone and they don't shake this way? They always put their hand on top of you just so you psychologically know who's really bigger in the situation. Ever been in a meeting where you're at one side and the boss is, this is what he's going to do on a magnificent scale. It says, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Now, I'm sorry to be so historical today, but all of this matters most. See, this story isn't just recorded in the Bible. Josephus, the top Jewish historian, at the same time the Bible was going down, actually writes this very same account. And what he gives us that the Bible does not is he actually describes the day and the clothing Herod wore. And this is why it matters. Josephus writes this about Herod in this actual moment. Herod was clad in a garment woven completely of silver, so its texture was indeed wondrous, and he entered the theater at daybreak. There, the silver, illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously blinding and radiant, and by its glitter it inspired fear and awe upon all those who gazed upon it. So he comes into this theater, and there's all these representatives, and the sun is coming up, and his clothing is set up intentionally to make him look divine. And when the sun hit it, he literally blinded the audience. And this is the response in Scripture. They shouted, this is a voice of a god not of a man. And then it happened. There's another suddenly, another immediately. Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of God struck him down. He was eaten by worms and he died. Wow. But the word of God continued and spread and it flourished. You say, what's the point? God always wins. 
This man is cut down four years into his reign. The contrast could not be more stark. God's victory over political power and all other power. See, Herod had all the cards. Peter gets out. Herod had the right clothing, money, connections, military backing. He knew Caesar. He had religious support. And yet God took him out, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God overcame bad leaders, bad thinking, military power, economic fights, wrong motives, deceived shepherds thinking they knew God and did not really know God. Now, if you're not seeing the connection, then let me make this a bold connection for you this morning. Religious problems, political problems, economic problems, social problems, national problems, racial problems. Look around, everyone. Have you been watching the news in the last five weeks? Look around. Our world, no matter where you land on the spectrum, whether you are left or right this morning or just done, here's what we need to remember in the midst of the crazy. God always wins. That is critical. But there's something deeper for us as the church to learn out of this text. How does God keep winning? Not just sovereignly up here, but on the ground by more more Twitter posts, by more Facebook likes, by more of you arguing on social media between each other as Christians? No. God wins on the ground when the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and the saving work of Jesus is spread more than the protests, the politics, and the economics. See, for in these growing turbulent and troubled times, I would like to say this to you as your pastor. Stop posting everything. I'm watching you. I'm, no, I'm, I'm, you're laughing. I'm not at this moment. Stop it. Start sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the only answer for a troubled world. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through Him. What have we learned in this series? I'm watching you devour each other on social media. What witness is that? This is the whole point right here. Who can make enemies friends? Who can take a Roman centurion and an African eunuch and connect them to a Greek Jew who... Jesus does this type of... 2017 is no different than 41 AD. So get your priorities right and start pointing the world to Jesus, not all the protests on either side. This is what reconciles the world, not all that. And that's what we see here in a very turbulent, dangerous political time. Now the story is deeper than just that moment though. Because this, for us, sets up a conversation, especially for your connect groups when you pull out your notes this week, that this church needs to really have. It forces us to talk about expectations. Now, I want you to notice and lean in and be uncomfortable for a moment. You're like, I already am. Good. Prepare for more. Two church leaders. Two people in the inner circle of Jesus. Peter, James, and John. Two were at the transfiguration. Both saw Jesus do everything. James gets beheaded, and Peter makes it out. Death and deliverance. So who did God love more? Who did God see more? We sang at this site this morning, God 
will always be with us. He'll, he'll never let us down. Really? The song's right, but what? Does God love one more than the other? No. Was God looking at Peter, not James? No. Was God personally both with them? Yes. Did God let either of them down? No, he did not. Let me share this to you with you this morning. Any suffering or martyrdom that happens to any of us is not weakness or God being hateful, uncaring, or sadistic. The Psalms declare one sixteen fifteen precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. God does not find pleasure at the death of his children, but he does allow it under a sovereign will. He uses the great deliverance stories and the unjust deaths to bring others to eternal life. Can you remember back, if you were part of our church last May and June, we did this amazing series called Take Heart, all about inspiring faith, and we looked at Hebrews 11, remember Abraham and Abel and Noah and Moses and Rahab, and we were inspired. But all sorts of us didn't keep reading. Let me just read Hebrews 11.32. What more shall I say? I mean... I don't have time, he says, to talk to you about Gideon or Brack or Samson, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and were like, yes, and administered justice and gained what was promised. The white hankies are out, out, like every, yes, who shut the the mouth of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies. We're like, yes, this is unbelievable. Women received back their dead. They're like, yes, raised to life. And then we stop reading. There were others who were tortured. Suddenly all the white hankies disappear. Refusing to be released so they might gain a better resurrection, whatever that means. Some faced jeers, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, sawed in two, killed by the sword. They went in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not even worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and living in caves and holes in the ground. And, and these were all, everyone lean in, commended for their faith, yet none of them... None of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us that only together with us would be made perfect. So here's the question, C4. If the Bible is our ultimate source for faith, life, and practice to form our expectations, what are we learning? During the greatest moves of God in history, there is opposition. When God moves the strongest, so does Satan. When God moves and people are changed, other people push back. When God moves the most, when we see the greatest amount of deliverances and healings and baptisms, in that moment, suffering will actually grow the closest to us. Comfort and safety is never a guaranteed ultimate factor for the follower of Jesus. Deliverance and all going right in this life is not guaranteed in the Bible at all. James walked with Jesus like this and was deeply faith. He knew Jesus better than any of us in this room. And so did Peter. And one gets beheaded, one gets to live for a longer time. But here's the point. Both of their stories push forward the message and the love and the power of Jesus. God sovereignly uses both stories to bring the kingdom of God on earth. Here is what the scriptures teach us. We as Christians are called to obey and preach the good news of Jesus and witness about Jesus and love the poor and meet together and be conformed to the scriptures because we love Jesus so much and live our lives with the understanding 
that in the end we know Jesus will make all things right at the resurrection is actually the day that only, not only sickness and pain and death will be finally removed, we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. That's why we can sing songs like he's never going to let us down because the resurrection is true and Jesus is the ultimate dr- judge. But if you don't have right expectations right now, you will shipwreck your faith. Remember why we're going through Acts 4. God is taking us through Acts because he's showing us not only how to reach out to people, he's not only clarifying what he's doing among us, he's actually also preparing us to keep doing things. I am so concerned as your pastor, and I mean this with no judgment, that so many of people in this church would leave the faith of Jesus or walk away or compromise large parts of the scripture if your job was really on the line or you had to actually have your reputation tarnished or your rights or your political views suddenly were not biblical and you had to choose between Jesus and that. Many of us might shipwreck our faith because we think that God would never, ever, ever use suffering in the middle of a spirit move, but that is not biblical. It is just middle class and it is Western. Why look at this? Because if we don't have a right starting point now, when the thing happens later, then God lied, I lied, or the church failed me. But it never dawns on so many of us that actually know maybe, maybe God allowed it. So this brings us to another question rest or fear? If safety is not guaranteed, do we get to rest and sleep like Peter? Yes. We don't need to be a church that's perpetually overcome by deep dread and anxiety and pan attacks, wondering, oh God, oh God, oh God, are you James? Am I James? Am I Peter? Stop. You might not be any of the above. But here's the cry. Oh, Holy Spirit, If you truly are moving in our church and it is genuine, give this church such joy and confidence in Jesus. May our life be so overshadowed and formed by the knowledge and by the truth, by the light of eternity. May the good news be so important that no matter what is happening to us, we can rest because we know that God is truly in control. Is this life good? Yes, Am I asking you all to become monks? No, no. Can you enjoy life? Please do. But remember, this life is not the end of the conversation. This life is the starting point that ripples forever. And that has to have more power than this every single hour. When God moves... In his sovereignty, he allows some of us to suffer for the sake of his gospel and others not. Why does he allow it? This is so other-centric and dangerous to us because he so cares about other people, he'll use your life to reach them too. God, in the middle of this, reminds us that expectations are critical. He shows us through Peter, who is a man just like you, a human being, He had foot and mouth disease, you all know it. (laughs) Messed up so many, listen. He reminds us we can rest in Jesus' sovereign love. One last thought though. In the middle of ongoing moves of God in times of persecution, 
in times of great turbulence, in times of political chaos, when even within a church, to the left and the right, we feel uncomfortable with each other? What is one of the ongoing non-negotiables? It's prayer. So important we hear this today. Prayer. Samuel Chaddock once wrote, Intensity is the law of prayer. Abraham pleaded with God over Sodom. Jacob wrestled with God all night and would not give up. Moses stood in the breach before God and his people. Elijah was so overcome by prayer in 1 Kings 18 that it says that he bowed his head between his knees and groaned and argued with God seven times over until there was rain in the land. He literally cried out of his guts. Hannah was overcome during prayer so much she was called a foolish drunk woman, though she was not. John Knox, the great, John Knox, the great, the great reformer in Scotland, literally cried out in his prayer life, "Oh God, you give me Scotland, or I die." One person simply read these, wrote these words: "If extended, fervent, united prayer is not the church's first resort in times of crisis, the church reveals that it is ultimately depending on something else or someone else other than God." In ongoing moves of God, in the most exciting times or the devastating times or when they blend together, we find a church that is praying. Now here is the thing we must gather around. God even answered the prayer of people who stopped believing. Aren't you thankful of God's mercy? But there are four enemies to prayer, by the way. Can you sit with them all week, please, in your connect groups? There are four enemies. Coldness. I just don't care. If you're like, I don't care, you've got a cold problem. Borden, I have better things to do with my life than pray. Cynicism, prayer has no effect. If I pray, God will not speak back to me. If I pray, I will not be changed, and I know my situation will never be changed. Just doesn't work. Or lack of faith. This is impossible. God will never hear me, or I just don't believe. And all I want to say is this. Because this isn't a simple one, two, three step and we're all clean and good. Churches that are keeping in step with the Spirit, that are being relevant to culture, but not being bought into it, that see the greatest moves of God, are supernaturally wooed, drawn, dragged back into times of prayer. So let me ask you this morning, all of you here, all of you listening, planes, other countries, you in the north, are your expectations even biblical? Do you need to talk to God about them? The answer is many of you need to. We need to pray that fear does not grip this church, but godly sleep does. Some of us in this church need to repent for, for wasting so much breath in the last 10 weeks and missing Jesus and loving our enemies. And all of us need to recommit as we prepare for what God is doing in this winter and then in this coming greater year among us that we recommit to pray again in new ways or old ways, but we pray. So hear our prayers, O oh God. Number one, thank you that you're actually in control. 
Because this world is really screwed up. And it's scary. Number two, forgive us, Lord, many of us. Even out of right motives, trying to make right things, we forgot to talk about Jesus. Forgive us for hating our enemies. Forgive us for turning on each other in this church. Forgive us. Lord, we pray that you would adjust our expectations today. No matter how uncomfortable that is. Lord, we pray that you would give... uh, Oh, how do I pray this? Anxiety is so big in this church. Give us something that transcends natural fear. I mean, I really pray this church would be marked by this sleep that Peter had in Jesus' name. And lastly, we pray that you would make us a people of prayer. As we've prayed for years in this place, do not relent, O Lord. Do not relent. Do not relent. Renewal of every person, revival in this church, and awakening in this region. This is what we ask boldly. In the name of God the Father who calls people, God the Son who thinks and dies and prays for people, died and prayed for people, and the Holy Spirit who makes us like Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.